Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. Today's case is a decades-old unsolved murder where a complete lack of evidence and motive swirl in contrast with rumors of witchcraft. The brutal Valentine's Day slaying leaves everyone who learns of it asking, but why? Charles Walton was an English man born May 12, 1870, to Charles and Emma Walton. Charles had lived in Lower Quinton, a tiny farming town about two hours northwest of London, all of his life. The quaint little village had a population of less than 500 residents. Charles was a bit of a loner who never really socialized with his neighbors, but he wasn't disliked, just quiet and shy. He had earned a reputation as a talented horse trainer when he was young, but as he aged, he turned his attention to taking on casual farming jobs around town wherever he could get them. In 1915, Charles adopted his three-year-old niece, Edith Walton, when her mother, Charles's sister, died, even though her father was still alive and lived in the same small town. Edith continued to live with her uncle even as she became an adult. Charles and his family had lived in the same small cottage in town since World War I. Charles's wife had died in December of 1927, leaving Charles and Edith to carry on alone. Charles paid his niece Edith one pound, about $1.27 in uh, U.S. currency, per week for housekeeping. Charles also paid for all of their living expenses, which included the three pence per week rent on the cottage, which is about $12 in U.S. currency, as well as their coal and food expenses. In addition to what he earned doing the odd farming chores around town, he received 10 shillings, about 40 cents in U.S. dollars, a week in something called an old age pension. I assume it's something like what we have as Social Security here in the States. By 1945, Charles was 75 years old and walked with a cane due to his arthritic joints. Farming was hard work for a man of his age, but he still managed. For the last nine months, he had been working for a local farmer named Alfred Potter, who owned a farm called The Furs. On Wednesday, February 14, 1945, Charles left home to trim hedges in a field known as Hill Ground on the slopes of Meon Hill. Edith said he left that morning carrying only a pitchfork and a slash hook, which is like a double-edged pruning implement with a sharpened straight edge on one side and a curved cutting edge on the other side. She said it wasn't unusual for him to leave his purse at home when he went out to work in the fields, not wanting to keep track of his money while he was working. He was seen passing through the local churchyard around nine that morning, headed in the direction of Meon Hill. That day, Edith was working as a printer's assembler at the Royal Society of Arts. She finished work and returned home around 6 p.m. that evening. She was surprised to find no sign of her Uncle Charles. He should have beaten her home by a good two hours that day. She immediately began to panic. There was no hope that he was out at the pub with friends. He had no friends. Her uncle followed a strict daily routine. He had never strayed from it before in the 30 years that she had lived with him. I mean, I don't blame her. He's 75 years old. He could have fallen and he can't get up. It's not like back in the day they had like some form of life alert. (laughs) Right. 
<laughs> and if he has no friends and he's been doing the exact same routine for 30 years, there's a good chance that something happened. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of older men like that, and that's totally out of their routine. And I don't blame anybody for automatically knowing something's wrong. Right. So Edith ran to her neighbor, Harry Beasley, another local farm worker, and asked for his help. Together, they made their way to the first farm to ask Alfred Potter if he had seen Charles that afternoon. Alfred claimed he had saw Charles earlier in the day slashing hedges in the hill ground field, but had been too busy to notice much after that. The three of them set out in the direction of the field where Charles had been seen that morning. As they walked along the line of hedges, they found his body. Charles had been beaten over the head with his own cane. Worst of all, someone had cut his neck open with the slash hook and driven the prongs of the pitchfork into either side of his neck, pinning him to the ground. The handle of the pitchfork had been wedged under the nearby hedges, and the slash hook was still buried in his neck, nearly decapitating him. Holy shit. Like, what enemies did he make? Because who does that? And they didn't even bring their own weapons? They just used his stuff on him? Exactly. It's brutal. And they just used whatever they found near him, I guess. That's, oh my god, that's horrible. I can't even imagine seeing that, finding that, you know? Especially, it's my uncle. No thank you. Exactly. The sight released all of the dread Edith had built up during the search, and she began to scream hysterically. Harry, the neighbor who she had convinced to help her look for Charles, tried to calm her down and prevented her from getting too close to the gruesome scene. Alfred called out to someone walking down the road on the other side of the hedges and told them to go alert the police. Harry led Edith back down the hill, and Alfred stood guard over the crime scene until the police arrived. The first officer on the scene was Michael James Loomsney, who arrived at 7.05 p.m. Local detectives arrived later that evening, while Professor James M. Webster of the West Midlands Forensic Laboratory arrived around 11.30 p.m. The body was finally removed at 1.30 the next morning. Talk about lack of urgency. They found his body at, what, 6.37, and then it finally gets removed at 1 o'clock in the morning? Right. What were they doing during that time? It's 1945. It's not like they're collecting DNA or anything. Right. They're just exposing the body to elements at that point. So the autopsy report on Charles found that his trachea had been cut and he had bruising to his chest and several broken ribs. Charles had defensive wounds on his hands and forearms, indicating that he put up quite a fight. Dr. Webster concluded that the victim's wounds had been caused by two weapons, a stabbing weapon and a cutting weapon, presumably the pitchfork and the slash hook. Charles had also been hit over the head with his own walking cane, which was found three and a half yards from his body with blood and hair stuck onto it. It was determined that Charles had died between 1 and 2 p.m. that day. Oddly, when his body was found, his shirt had been ripped open, his pants had been unfastened at the top, and his fly was undone. The only item of value that he would have been carrying on him was a now-missing pocket watch, estimated to be worth only about 25 pounds. Okay, so whoever had it out for him, it had to be some type of revenge or killing of passion, one might say, because... If they only stole the watch, then what was the point of of killing him in the first place? And then it's also sounding like it's multiple people, because that's a lot of injuries for one person to cause to a 75-year-old man. 
I mean, he's 75. It did say he put up quite a fight. Um, but you see an old man in a field by himself. You might think <laughs> that it's not much of Easy a... target. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But also, in that same regard, what farm worker carries a bunch of money on them? Like, what were they hoping to get? It had to right. be personal. It had to be. Maybe they wanted some, like, seeds or something. I don't know. <laughs> it, it's, it's 1945, not 1805. <laughs> like, yeah, that's true. That's true. But what is the reason, you know? Like, that's just wild. Yeah. I Honestly, it only gets weirder. <laughs> oh, gosh. You ready? Being a small rural community, it was decided pretty quickly to bring in detectives from Scotland Yard to assist in the case. The police chief stated his theories in his letter requesting help from Scotland Yard. He believed this murder had to have been committed by either a crazy person or one of the Italian World War II prisoners of war held at a prison camp nearby. Apparently, the prisoners were allowed to wander the area whenever they liked, and although there was a schedule for workdays and free days, no real record was kept of their movements. I'm all for rehabilitation centers, and I know that they do it different overseas, but that seems a little wild to me. Prisoners of war during World War II? <laughs> like, yeah. They're just wandering around. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they're, like, pissed, you know? Like, <laughs> it just seems like a lot. It seems like a strange <laughs> way to treat prisoners of war. Agreed. <laughs> for sure. Um, Chief Inspector Robert Fabian and his partner, Detective Sergeant Albert Webb, arrived on February 16th to begin their investigation. Later that same day, Detective Sergeant Saunders, who spoke fluent Italian, also arrived to assist with interviewing the nearby prisoners. On the afternoon of the day of the murder, some prisoners had gone into town to see a play while others had gone to see a movie. They investigated the prisoners, but it did not appear that any of the Italians were ever seriously considered as a suspect. I mean, did they check the records at the movie theater or the play? Honestly, they didn't really look into them at all. The detectives really narrowed in on one suspect, and they looked into the prisoners, but not seriously. Hmm. I just feel like if I were an investigator, I would probably look into the prisoners, but... I'm not one. I'm just a true crime podcaster. <laughs> you might see why they focused in on one suspect after I tell you the next part. <laughs> okay. Okay, I'm listening. <laughs> on the night of the murder, Detective Tomes took an initial statement from Alfred Potter when police arrived on the scene. Alfred stated that he had been at the farm for about five years and had known Charles all of that time. He had employed Charles casually for the last nine months and said that Charles worked when the weather permitted on no set schedule. However, he believed Charles usually took an hour lunch around 11 a.m. and always left by 4 p.m. in the afternoon. Charles had been working on hedging for the previous few months and Hillground was the last field needing attention. Alfred said that day he had been at a local pub with another local farmer named Joseph Stanley until about noon. After that, he had gone straight across to a small field adjoining hill ground and saw Charles working about 500 to 600 yards away, which is about a quarter of a mile. He said he noticed that Charles had about 6 to 10 yards of hedge left to cut and that when he found his body later that day, about four additional yards of hedge had been cut, which would be about half an hour's work. He described Charles as, quote, 
inoffensive type of man, but one who would speak his mind if necessary, end quote. On February 17th, detectives Fabian and Webb brought Alfred in for another conversation, this time directly with them. Alfred told them that Charles usually worked about four days each week, but never in wet weather. He confirmed that he paid him 18 pence per hour, usually every two weeks, though sometimes he paid him by the week. He said that he left it up to Charles to say how many hours he had completed and implied that sometimes Charles lied in order to be paid for hours he had not actually worked. The last time he paid Charles was February 10th when he had given him two pounds, 15 shillings, which is about $3.12, which would have been the equivalent of about $50 today with inflation. I kind of raised my eyebrow at suspects or just people being interviewed about a victim and they just kind of throw little little dabs, you know, like shade at them. Like he would kind of lie about, you know, he would lie to me about what he was being paid. You know, it's like you're making him out to be a bad person. Why are you making him out to be a bad person? Right. It is kind of strange. They didn't ask him if he had any issues with Charles. He just offered that information unprompted. Right. 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 Like, he's trying to convince them. Like, yeah, he lies, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Unnecessary. Right. So Alfred reiterated to detectives his original statement about his whereabouts that day. He claimed that on the day of the murder, he had left his friend and gone across to a field known as Cax Lays to seize some sheep and to feed some calves. When he reached the field, it was 12.20 p.m., and he saw Charles working on the hedges. He told them Charles was wearing his shirt and pants with no coat. He was sure of this because it was the first time he had seen him dressed like that and he had thought to himself he's really getting on with it today, end quote. Alfred added that he would have gone over to talk to Charles normally, but he had a cow in a ditch nearby that needed his attention. Detectives later discovered that the mentioned cow had drowned in that ditch on February 13th the day before the murder, and the body hadn't been removed until 3.30 p.m. on February 14th. He then changed his story and said after visiting the sheep and calves, he went straight home and arrived there at 12.40 p.m. He then helped one of his workers pulp beets until about 1 p.m. The farm worker known as Happy confirmed this account but quit his job at the farm not long after his interview with police. Alfred's wife also confirmed this timeline of events, stating that he joined her for lunch at 1.05 p.m. Well, look who's the liar now. (laughs) He doesn't seem to know what he was doing that day. I mean, clearly. I mean, because he's a liar. He was projecting when he was talking about Charles. (laughs) Right. The detectives had a strange feeling about Alfred Potter, too, and quickly added him to the suspect list. Police officer Michael Loomsney, the local police officer who arrived at the crime scene first after police were notified, knew Alfred and his wife personally. The Scotland Yard detectives asked him to stay close to the couple to see what they might unwittingly reveal. On February 20th, Officer Michael was at the farm visiting the Potters when he casually mentioned the fact the police were still hoping to take fingerprints from the murder weapons. Alfred responded that he had touched the handle of the slash hook and possibly the pitchfork, too, when he first came across the body. 
He laughed it off, claiming that he had already mentioned this to the police, so it was no big deal. He said he had only handled the weapons because when he found the body, Harry commented that, quote, you'd better have a look to make sure he's dead. Alfred's wife Lillian displayed considerable annoyance at her husband's sudden revelation, stating that the police were bound to suspect him if his prints were on the murder weapon. I mean, obviously. And it's very obvious that he was dead when you found him. That was a lot of injuries for somebody to still be alive. <laughs> right. Alfred totally brushed off his wife's concerns, stating that the murder was obviously the work of a fascist from the prison camp. A little while later that evening, a soldier came to the door and told the group that the military police at the camp caught an Italian coming out with a suit of clothes and detained him, sending for the civil police. They took the Italian prisoner away with them. Officer Michael reported to detectives that upon hearing this, quote, Potter affected great glee and his wife became almost hysterical with delight, end quote. Detectives found this curious as Alfred hadn't mentioned touching anything at the crime scene in any of his interviews with police up to this point. When they questioned Harry about the claim, he strongly denied that he had asked Alfred to make sure Charles was dead in any way. He told them it was obvious Charles was dead from just looking at the condition of the body. He also told them Alfred did not touch the pitchfork or slash hook while he and Edith were present. Detective Fabian had the feeling Alfred had made that part of the story up as an explanation for why his fingerprints might be found on the murder weapons. When Alfred Michael had brought it up, regardless, no prints were found in the end. I'm actually shocked no prints were found in the end, but I also know that taking DNA back then and fingerprints was not like it is today. Also, he was, you know, outside for a very long time. If he was killed about one or two in the afternoon and they didn't remove his body from that field until 12 hours later, you know, the At that point, Alfred had time. time. Yeah. Right. I'm like, Alfred had time to go wipe it off and all of that time it took for anybody to get there. It's so suspicious that he came up with a convenient reason his fingerprints might be on the weapons, though. Like, that's so shady. It's very shady. <laughs> so the detectives also took statements from two former employees of Alfred's, William Died and George Prunnell. Both confirmed that from time to time, Alfred had hard time paying their wages. On February 27th, Detective Fabian looked into any debts Alfred may have had, as well as any debts his family may have had. You see, Alfred didn't really own the Furs farm. His father did. Levi Potter, Alfred's father, was a very successful businessman, and his company, L.L. Potter & Co., managed several businesses in the area, including a large hotel. Once it was confirmed that there were no debts against Alfred or his family, Detective Fabian started digging into an investigation the Ministry of Agriculture and Fisheries had conducted on the farm regarding fair wages. The inspector R.G. Elliott, who conducted the investigation on January 12th of that year, was reluctant to share his findings with the detectives without approval from headquarters. Eventually, the detectives got the report they were seeking, and Alfred's casual comment that he might occasionally pay Charles for hours he had not worked was illuminated in a whole new light. 
an examination of the amounts he had requested for wages to pay his employees from L.L. Potter & Co., and the actual amounts he had paid to Charles showed that Alfred was actually claiming more than he needed to pay his employees and pocketing the difference. Alfred was actively stealing from his own father and getting away with it. I mean, he's an active liar, so it doesn't make, like, surprise me that he's an active, like, thief. Honestly, if he hadn't have mentioned to the detectives that Charles was stealing from him, they might not have even looked into the finances this closely. Yeah, he screwed himself. He ratted himself out yeah. because he claimed Charles was doing the exact thing he was actually doing to his father. Oh, my gosh. Alfred's statements just weren't adding up to the detectives. Not only did Alfred's story about what he was doing change, but the time of day when he saw Charles working continued to change from statement to statement. Throughout the investigation, Alfred had claimed he had seen Charles working in the distance at 1210, 1215, 1220, ultimately telling the inquest committee that he had seen someone standing stationary at 1230. He also claimed when he saw Charles, he was only in his button-up long-sleeve shirt. However, when his body was found, he was wearing a jacket. Underneath his jacket, he was wearing a shirt, but the sleeves were cut off. Nothing like what Alfred said that Charles was wearing that day. Despite Alfred changing his story in various ways, Detective Fabian concluded that there was not enough solid evidence to connect him with the murder itself, and no reasonable motive could be found for why Alfred would have committed it. Detective Fabian tried but ultimately failed to find any indication that Alfred was violent in any way or that he and Charles had ever fought. Detective Fabian described Alfred as morose and sullen during his interviews. Even when rigorously interrogated, he never lost his temper and was always civil. He wrote in his report that Alfred was unkept and on the surface dull-witted, but he continued, quote, I am convinced he is far from that. I believe the man to be of considerable strength and an extremely cunning individual, end quote. I mean, I think there's enough circumstantial evidence that Alfred did this. <laughs> and my, like, you know, to me. I think it's pretty obvious. Yeah, I think, right. <laughs> I think it's very obvious. Um, I'm not a court of law, though. No, I'm you know, not. But if you change your story several times over, you claim to have touched something. You could have easily wiped it off. You thought the man was a liar. To me, I mean, I feel like that's enough of a motive to kill him. Maybe Charles found out that Alfred was stealing from his dad. And that was enough motive Maybe. to kill him, to keep him quiet. I don't know. To me, it makes sense. It, yeah, I agree. But, you know, they have to prove it in court. Maybe he didn't feel confident doing that. Well, put me in there as the prosecution. <laughs> Despite Detective Fabian's hunch and our hunch that Alfred Potter was their killer, they left no stone unturned in their investigation. Statements were taken from over 500 residents of Lower Quinton, some as young as 11 years old, as well as other individuals who were in and around the area on the day of the murder. A detailed search of the entire area surrounding the murder scene was undertaken, with the help of royal engineers using metal detectors in an attempt to find Charles's pocket watch or some other clue, but they found nothing. 
They passed the description of the missing watch to pawn shops and jewelers, but no one ever came forward. There were reports that the pocket watch was found in the outhouse of Charles's cottage in 1960, despite an extensive search by the police at the time of the murder. But we aren't entirely sure if that report is true or not. Well, he's really good at wiping off his fingerprints on evidence. I'm sure he just put it back there after they searched his property. And then it just wasn't found until the 60s. That's yeah. totally possible. I would not put it above Alfred to plant evidence. Right. right. Me, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At the time of the murder, Edith told police that she had no knowledge of her uncle ever lending anyone money and she had not seen any IOUs in their house, leading police to rule out the theory that someone had killed him so they didn't have to repay a debt. Inquiries at the Midland Bank revealed that Charles had deposited 227 pounds in June of 1930, but by nine years later, it had dwindled down to only 11 pounds. Charles had made numerous withdrawals during those years, but never more than 10 pounds or so at a time. Money didn't appear to be a reasonable motive to kill the man. The investigation also revealed that Charles's best and possibly only friend was 72-year-old George Higgins. Although the pair had not seen each other since the previous Christmas, George was employed by Mr. Valander of Upper Quinton and at the time of the murder had been working in a barn just 300 yards from Charles. Detective Fabian speculated that George could have made his way across the fields unseen and killed Charles. However, he doubted that the old man would have had the strength to mount such an attack. Not to mention he didn't appear to have any motive to want to kill his friend. I mean, I could see why they might think that, but just, they had to check out everybody. They had to check out everyone. To me, it it just all points to Alfred. I agree. He's the only reasonable choice, and his story kept changing. Mm -hmm. He's suspicious as hell. Eventually, Detectives Fabian and Webb returned to London, while Detective Superintendent Alex Spooner continued to search for the murderer. Charles's murder fascinated Detective Spooner so much that he continued to return to the village long after the rest of the world had assumed that the killer would never be found. Detective Spooner was open to more magical theories than Detective Fabian and Webb had been. There were two local legends in particular that sparked his interest. One was brought forth by the local newspaper. See, on February 13, 1954, The day before the ninth anniversary of Charles Walton's murder, the Daily Mirror revisited the murder of Anne Tennant and alleged similarities between that event and Charles's murder. Anne Tennant was a resident of Long Compton, 15 miles away from Lower Clinton, and was murdered at the age of 80 on September 15, 1875. At about 8 o'clock in the evening, Anne left her house to buy a loaf of bread. On her way back, she ran into some local farm workers returning home from harvesting in the fields. One of the men in the group was a man named James Haywood. James was what was known back then as simple-minded, basically a generic term to describe anyone with a mental disability. It was known that he had also been drinking that night. Without warning, he attacked Anne with a pitchfork, stabbing her in the legs and the head. A local farmer named Taylor heard the commotion and ran to help Anne. He restrained James until police arrived. Anne was taken to her daughter's house, but died of her injuries at about 11.15 that night. James claimed that Anne was a witch and that there were other witches in the village whom he intended to deal with in the same way. 
Although put on trial for murder, he was found not guilty on grounds of insanity and spent the rest of his life in Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. He died there at age 59 in the early 1890s, long before Charles met his fate. The article cryptically stated, quote, The police have found one other link between the killings, but I am pledged not to reveal it, end quote. In many versions of Anne's story, it has been claimed that Anne was pinned to the ground with a pitchfork and slashed with a billhook, which according to police reports is not true. It was rumored around town that locals believed Charles was a witch as well, and his powers were feared by some of the villagers. Rumors claimed he could cast the evil eye and kept natterjack toads as pets and use them to kill the crops and livestock of local farmers that angered him. Two examples cited by locals were the failure of the harvest the previous year and the death of Alfred's cow the day before the murder. It was claimed that it was his alleged witchcraft that had led him to be murdered in a ritualistic sacrifice, which involved his blood soaking into the ground to replenish the soil's fertility. Okay, that's a lot. (laughs) 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 Okay, let's break it down. The first theory is... Anne Tennant, who was killed in the 1800s by a mentally ill man with a pitchfork. So she's a senior, just like um, he was. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, Obviously, the man who killed her died long before Charles was around. So I'm not sure what the article was getting at other than the pitchfork similarity. Which I'm assuming all farmers had. During that time, right. you know, <laughs> it's kind of kind of part like, of the job. You know. um, I don't know what the newspaper was getting at unless they think, you know, a ghost came and killed him. Right. But. <laughs> right. I mean, I'd like to know who these locals were that thought he was a witch. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's the second theory, right? Is that he was also a witch like mm-hmm. Anne or whatever. Not saying Anne was a witch, but that's what um, her murderer said. Right. So. The rumor that Charles was a witch is interesting to me. Um, And I find it interesting that the locals think um, Charles used witchcraft to kill Alfred's cow. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder if Alfred was superstitious. Mm -hmm. Like, did Alfred think Charles killed his cow? Did Alfred, like, start that rumor? You know, like, what if this was all a setup? You've got to wonder. What if he killed his cow? What if he spread the rumor or brought the story back of Anne's death to the village and then, you know, kind of put that in everybody's head? I, you know, it's possible. It's possible. People are sneaky. You know what's, I know. What is interesting is that Charles Walton was unlikely to be, you know, the devil worshiping witch that some people think of Mm -hmm. today. But there is a possibility that he was one of the last type of witches called a cunning folk. They were practicing in England in the 1940s. As a cunning man, Charles would have had a deep understanding and respect for folk magic cures and medicine, and he would have used his knowledge and skills to fight, you know, evil spirits and demonic witchcraft, you know, superstitions around town. He would have broken hexes and whatnot. He would have healed the sick and offered charms and spells for a small fee. Cunning folk were mostly male and were seen as useful people with a deep understanding of the countryside and an affinity with nature. However, Charles's niece Edith 
adamantly insists that he was not a witch of any kind. Yeah, I don't necessarily think he was a witch. If he was, that's fine too. But I don't think he he was. And at the end of the day, somebody still murdered him. Right. And it's possible that the witchcraft rumors actually came from the de- one of the detectives. So the two police reports that Detective Fabian wrote in the case in 1945 make no mention of witchcraft, ritualistic killings, or blood sacrifices. However... 25 years later, he wrote the following, quote, I advise anybody who is tempted at any time to venture into black magic, witchcraft, shamanism, call you what it will, to remember Charles Walton and to think of his death, which was clearly the ghastly climax of a pagan rite. There is no stronger argument for keeping as far away as possible from the villains with their swords, incense, and mumbo-jumbo. It is prejudice of which your future peace of mind and even your life could depend, end quote. I'd be so pissed off if I was his family and that's like the legacy that you're leaving behind for him. Oh, girl, I should also mention that Detective Fabian became a beloved celebrity detective at the time, who many believed he was the reincarnation of the fictional Sherlock Holmes. This was his final case. Charles's case was the final case he worked on before retiring and moving on to a career in writing crime novels and TV shows called Fabian of the Yard, where he dramatized his cases he investigated during his career for money. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, Any detective like that, to me, can't be trusted. (laughs) They're Um, doing it to, like, bring you in, you know? How can I make the case more interesting? Let me just drag it out. Let me just throw a little razzle-dazzle witchcraft in it. (laughs) Agree. I think he's dragging Charles's good name through the mud for entertainment. Yeah. He definitely is. Now, Well, now it makes sense. I don't believe a word he has to say. Absolutely not. (laughs) This case was never solved and remains an open case to this day. Nearly 80 years later, we will likely never know who killed Charles Walton or why. Was he a witch cursing the lands of his employer? Was it a simple robbery gone wrong? Or was there a hidden motive kept secret all these years by the one person most closely connected to this murder? Everyone connected to this case is long dead by now. But doesn't Charles still deserve justice? Cold Case Investigative Research Institute assists families in law enforcement with unsolved homicides, missing person cases, and kidnapping cases. This one-of-a-kind band of all-volunteer crime fighters are students and nationally recognized experts, such as profilers, detectives, crime analysts, prosecutors, and crime scene investigators. Their main goal is to find justice for cold case victims. They are driven by a genuine desire to use knowledge, talents, and skills to find justice for victims and aid local law enforcement in solving cold cases where the perpetrators have eluded the long arm of the law. To learn more or get involved, visit coldcasecrimes.org. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check our Instagram at Crime and Contra Podcast for our question of the week. You can also find us on TikTok. Steph, what's our Contra tip of the week? 
Chiastolite can be helpful during a state of change, assisting the holder in traversing disquieting situations and in gaining a foothold in new circumstances. It can also be used for problem solving and to provide answers to mysterious occurrences, maybe even provide insight on a few of our own unsolved mysteries. I kind of wish the detectives back in the day would have had their hands on a little uh, chiastolite. <laughs> it probably would have been considered witchcraft. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's true. So scratch that, but something close to it. <laughs> Until, Until next time, time stay, stay vigilant, vigilant conjurers. conjurers.